getting the same set of questions over and over and over again from our partner cities. And it was, who's done this before? What other cities? How much did it cost? What have the outcomes been? How did they procure it? How was it designed? It was the same set of questions over and over again. And our city partner said to us, you know, I can't even think about approaching my mayor or my city council with something like this until I have a really good handle on who's done this before, what other cities have done this before. Because at the end of the day, it's one of our advisors, Mayor Nutter from Philadelphia, always likes to say, cities don't really like to be first, they like to be third or fourth to innovate. So the key is de-risking these kinds of projects for cities to make it easier for them to, as we fondly say, rip off and duplicate to R&D. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. My name is Kiff Scheuer. I'm the Climate Change Program Director at the Local Government Commission and host of our regular monthly series on adaptation and livable communities, where we are discussing ways we can create more resilient communities by fostering knowledge exchange, identifying new resources, and sharing innovative perspectives and tools. We're also kicking off this series of episodes leading up to our California Adaptation Forum, which will be held in Sacramento from August 27th to 29th. And this biennial California Adaptation Forum gathers the community together to foster knowledge, exchange, innovation, and mutual support to create more resilient communities throughout the state. So hope you don't miss it and register now at CaliforniaAdaptationForum.org. Today as our guest, we are honored to have Ellery Monks, co-founder of the Atlas Marketplace, a free online community for public officials upgrading their systems to be stronger, smarter, and more sustainable. Since launching, Ellery has worked with over 70 partner cities, helping them scale and replicate resiliency solutions. Prior to co-founding the Atlas, Ellery was a partner at Refocus Partners, a firm dedicated to the design and financing of resilient infrastructure, and before that, held a fellowship in Washington, D.C., where she acted as the executive secretary of the Obama administration's Climate Data and Tools Initiative, and more broadly provided analytic and technical support to the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. Ellery, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So let's just dive right in, Ellery. So much of our adaptation and resiliency work feels tentative. We're at the beginning stages. We hear about pilots and plans. There's a lot of analysis going on, but far less often are we, we're talking about real implementation examples. So I'm particularly interested in hearing from you about some of these many success stories from your partner cities, because it sounds like you're on the front row working with communities who are making serious progress on resilience and adaptation. I'm also guessing our audience will want to learn about what you are seeing are the key factors that enable these cities to act when so many others are still trying to figure out what that first step is. So why don't we start there? What's the critical piece that gets a city out of the starting blocks on these projects? Oh my goodness. Well, I don't know if there is a critical piece. <laughs> I don't know if there's just one. I think there's a whole, a whole bunch of success factors. But before we talk about those success factors, maybe one thing I want to point out just from a bird's eye view across our 75 partner cities and, and partner local governments is that a lot of times when you're seeing adaptation projects and resilience projects really moving forward, actually breaking ground, they may not be branded as adaptation or resilience projects. So a lot of times when we see some really huge projects moving forward, it's not under the branding of adaptation or resilience. It's happening either 
as a part of disaster response and recovery, or it may be happening in places like the water and sewer utility. It could be happening in the public works department, those types of teams. And again, may not be branded as adaptation or resilience. And so it might not get a ton of acknowledgement for that. But really, that's what's happening on the ground. And we can talk about specific examples I'd be happy to share. Let me dig in on that a little bit and maybe pose a a hypothetical or, or a question around that, which is, if they're going forward anyway, and they're not resilience projects, what's the problem? If folks are doing this work, it would seem that the standard mechanisms are, are working. <laughs> well, so, I mean, I think that it's a good thing, right? Any progress is good progress. And anytime there's a resilience or adaptation project actually breaking ground is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. I think that the danger is that it may not, those projects may not be part of a comprehensive strategy or plan. And as you know, probably better than I do, that is so essential for making sure that resiliency and adaptation projects are doing what they're supposed to do in terms of reducing hazards, reducing risks, and really protecting entire communities. So I think, you know, when you have these one-off projects, they can, again, still be great. I totally applaud them, but I think that there's a danger that they may not reflect a more comprehensive strategy that's typically done as a part of adaptation plans, resiliency plans, those sorts of things. Interesting. So give me an example maybe of where a vanilla project became a resilient project by virtue of perhaps taking that bigger view, taking a more integrated view, or adding additional analytic layers that let it respond to hazards in the future as opposed to the past, if you can. Yeah, absolutely. My favorite example is from one of our partner local governments, Miami-Dade Water and Sewer. So that's Miami-Dade County, which, as you know, is enormous. And water and sewer is, you know, you're talking about a massive, massive budget, huge critical assets, all of those sorts of things. They've identified that they're tremendously vulnerable to sea level rise, to storm surge, saltwater intrusion, all you know, that whole intertwined set of issues on the coast in Florida. And Miami-Dade Water and Sewer has made a commitment to resilience through its capital improvement plan. So they're actually going through, they've already broken ground on a whole series of projects actually to elevate critical assets like pumping stations, elevating electronics, all of those kinds of things, which a lot of times really are the first step to pursuing a more comprehensive adaptation and resilience strategy. So they're already doing all those things in in Miami-Dade Water and Sewer. But one of the things that they're doing that I think is so great now is that they've taken a step back in partnership with their chief resilience officer, Jim Murley. And they've been taking a, a really critical eye to the capital improvement plan to prioritize projects with an eye towards sea level rise, saltwater intrusion, and adaptation and really ranking projects and saying, this is where we should be putting money and when. These are the projects that need to break ground first and why. And I think that that's really tremendous because like I said, they're, I think they're a great example of, of a local government that's already started to make progress on the ground with kind of some of those lower hanging fruit projects, kind of the most obvious projects, but is now taking a much more critical strategic step back to make sure that that progress reflects a broader comprehensive strategy. 
Oh, that's great to hear about. And something in there also jumps out at me that I've heard about in various communities, which is the interplay between staff and general staff who are, you know, have a deep knowledge of the issues, the technology, the engineering, and your champions, maybe a chief resilience officer, even a community champion. Are you seeing that play out and starting to inform the practice as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think on so many levels, when you're talking about success factors for actually seeing these projects move forward and attract funding and financing and actually break ground, probably the biggest success factor is whether or not a project has a champion and whether or not that champion is empowered by their political leadership to actually do what the champion needs to do to move a project forward. I think that you see that in communities around the country and around the world. You know, I think a great example is if you look at the progress that's been made in the New York, New Jersey region after Hurricane Sandy, when you look at things like rebuild by design, those those sorts of things, it is fairly obvious which communities have really empowered champions and which ones do not. And typically, those communities that do have the really empowered champions are the ones who have projects that are moving forward into, again, either into design, engineering, or, or actually breaking construction. That is certainly the case in the city of Hoboken. They've had fantastic leadership at the political and the staff level after Hurricane Sandy. And I think that that's been a huge success factor in in them being able to actually uh, start construction on a series of resiliency parks. And I would argue that they're further ahead than a lot of communities because of that champion. Are there particular things you've seen that champion do in that dynamic that were stand out as, as successful approaches that maybe other people could learn from? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest things is that those folks, they tend to lead a lot of the citizen engagement efforts and the political engagement efforts. So those are the folks that are really on the ground explaining the benefits of the project and explaining the need for the project in language that citizens understand and find compelling and and think is exciting, as well as to mayor's offices, city council, all those types of folks. They really, you need to have on board if you're going to pursue a large scale resilience or adaptation project. It's, you know, it's absolutely essential to have citizen support and your elected support. So a lot of times those champions who are particularly effective are excellent communicators, really understand the need for the project on the ground and will go to bat for the project to explain the need and, and to take the time to do the engagement. Interesting. Yeah, thank you. Something, you know, you mentioned two examples so far, the Sandy area and Miami-Dade, where the issues are very present, very visible. Obviously, in one case with Sandy, an extreme disaster hit. You know, we talked in another episode with Liz Williams about Louisiana and, and some of the efforts there. And again, the impacts were visible to everybody. How do we get ahead of that? How do we build resiliency momentum where we haven't yet had that big disaster? Man, I think that that's such a hard question. And I don't know that I have a great answer. I think my suggestion would be to try to focus as much as possible on current citizen pain points as much as possible, while always keeping an eye on the bigger issue that that current pain point represents. So being able to, for example, talk about heat waves and heat island effect in Chicago, and use that as an anchor to engage citizens more broadly about 
climate change, resilience, adaptation writ large, but being able to anchor folks to something that's impacting their daily life. I think it's very difficult to have a conversation about these issues without doing that anchoring. I just think it's a really tough uphill battle. And I don't, I honestly don't know if I've seen it done particularly well without that anchoring. Well, give us some more examples. You mentioned Chicago and heat waves, but you know I've heard you talk at other times about this importance of scoping, getting the pain point right. I don't know that that's as familiar to people who don't see what you see. Tell us some more examples of that space where folks are lining up the value proposition to their constituents, to their leadership. Yeah, yeah. And what I'll say is that so much of this, I think the underpinning of so much of this work has to be that community engagement, that citizen engagement to understand what folks care about and what their pain points are. So in some communities, as we've already discussed, it's really obvious. It's things like chronic flooding. It's business closures due to flooding. It's road blockages due to flooding. That's probably the easiest case, the most obvious case to be able to link back. And I think a lot of times when you're seeing some really, really significant on the ground progress, With regards to resilience and adaptation, it's in those areas that are experiencing repeat chronic flooding, saltwater intrusion, those kinds of issues. I mentioned Chicago and heat waves. That was in reference to some some really great progress that they've made with regards to cooling shelters. And that's not just the case in Chicago. That's happening in communities around the country where they've used heat waves and vulnerable populations, elderly, disabled, those types of populations during heat waves to open up a conversation about climate change, increasing temperatures, and who really stands to lose the most when these events become more extreme. I think that it's also true in the Southwest. You've seen some really great examples with regards to like desert green infrastructure in places like El Paso, and being able to link that to things like water bills. You know, again, being able to take a step back and relate it to things that citizens care about in their daily lives have been more successful, at least so far. Outstanding. And once you've got that engagement, once you've started to build some momentum in these projects and maybe get some buy-in, you touched on, obviously, finance is a big part of it. Any lessons, experiences, examples you're seeing in the financing space that you want to share with folks that are showing how folks can put the dollars together? Yeah. I mean, one thing that I'll say is that you know, I think when when projects are designed to solve or address a citizen pain point, and it has the support of citizens and electeds, it's incredible how the money seems to fall in place when those are the projects that you're talking about. It's much easier to get funding and financing for those types of projects. That's the first thing I'll say. There is, of course, a whole category of kind of big resilience or adaptation projects, you know, when you're talking about really massive earth moving projects that are very, very difficult to finance, because they don't have predictable revenues associated with them. It's not obvious who should pay all of those sorts of things. And we've seen a really great trend across many of our partner local governments with regards to various innovative financing mechanisms, whether that's environmental impact bonds, social impact bonds, pay for success, resilience bonds, all of those sorts of things. And I think that that's a hugely positive development. One thing that I will warn about, though, and and one thing that we're seeing across all of our partner local governments 
is that the use of those innovative financing mechanisms requires a tremendous amount of capacity at the local level from a design, engineering, financing perspective that typically only resides in bigger, higher capacity local governments. Those types of innovative financing mechanisms typically require a tremendous amount of data upfront, which is quite frankly lacking (laughs) in a lot of cities. And a lot of them require some pretty hefty ongoing monitoring and evaluation that, again, is out of reach. So I hear what you're saying about the complexity of these finance packages uh, from both an analysis and engineering and a monitoring perspective. I'm going to guess that touches a lot of different departments in a local government when they can, when they do have the capacity to do this. How does that come about? And are, have you seen some good examples where departments are coming together to try and manage the, that large-scale financial packaging? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's one of the things that I'll say is is a success factor that we're seeing across our partner local governments where this is working really well and projects are moving forward on a big scale and attracting funding and financing. It's that there are other really heavy hitting departments involved in these efforts. So going back to the earlier example I gave about Miami-Dade County, water and sewer. So just to give you guys, to give everyone an anchor, they've committed to $13 billion with a B. That's Miami-Dade water and sewer committed through their capital improvement plan over the next 20 years and have committed to prioritizing resilience and adaptation projects. That is, I mean, it goes without saying, but that is in enormous capital plan. <laughs> that's an, And that's an enormous amount of money to be going to resilience and adaptation projects. And without the leadership of water and sewer in Miami-Dade County, that wouldn't be happening. So some of the other examples where we're seeing this work really, really great is when the climate folks do an excellent job of engaging public works departments, maintenance departments, housing and redevelopment, all of those kinds of folks that really at the end of the day are going to be most affected by climate change in a lot of ways. It's their budget that's going to be affected. It's their staff. So when they're able to be brought to the table early and in a really empowered kind of way and in a way that they want to actually lead projects, that's where we're seeing a lot of success move forward. Excellent. And that actually leads me to one of my other kind of favorite, boring, yet absolutely critical topics, which is procurement, right? This is where people tend to go to sleep, but we're talking about complex emerging technologies with engineering solutions that somebody needs to spec out. How is that happening and where do you see the success happening or where do you see some of the challenges lying around the procurement of these solutions? Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I used to joke all the time that procurement used to just fully put me to sleep. I couldn't care less about it. And then I realized that in order for a city to pursue green infrastructure or microgrids, I was going to have to care about procurement. (laughs) And, And now I think it's fascinating. So in terms of context, the reason why procurement matters so much when you're talking about resilience and adaptation is that a lot of times the solutions that we're talking about are distributed right? It's a resilience project is oftentimes made up of a whole series of pieces and parts. So think about citywide green infrastructure is a great example. When you think about 
procuring that, how a city actually goes about buying and building citywide green infrastructure, a traditional RFP, a traditional solicitation is really not well suited to being able to build and buy that solution. The same thing is true, for example, of you know sensor systems in a water system that allows a city to do real-time management of a water system. So we're doing a few things. And in terms of trends, what I think is really important to point out is that there's been a broader trend towards performance-based procurement, outcome-based procurement, problem-based procurement, where local governments are, are really taking a step back and trying to say, okay, we're going to try to be less prescriptive about the specific technology that we want to buy and build. And instead, we're going to be really clear-headed about the problem that we're trying to solve and to what level and over what kind of time frame, and try to devise different ways for us to stay flexible throughout the procurement process so that we can see what different folks propose. So we have a workshop coming up in collaboration with Refocus Partners, U.S. Water Alliance, at the Kresge Foundation, actually, in Detroit, coming up at the end of May, where we're bringing together a group of seven of our partner cities with a whole slew of really awesome implementing partners. And we're actually bringing them together for a day-long workshop to figure out what are some new procurement mechanisms that these cities can use to build and buy resilient infrastructure systems. So this workshop in particular is focused on legacy water systems and using things like requests for ideas, challenges and competitions, pay for success, performance-based contracting, all of those kinds of things, and really workshopping together to see if these cities can use those procurement mechanisms to build and buy some really fantastic, resilient, sustainable solutions. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I I wish I could join you, frankly, because it's also, for me, it's something that seemed boring and is now kind of more and more interesting, and and I appreciate that. And I I believe we provide uh, links after our podcasts, and so I'm hopeful that maybe uh, results from your workshop you could share with us at some point. We could share with our listeners. I imagine there's going to be some interesting work coming out of that. And I'll say, Kip, to that point, a huge outcome from the workshop is going to be a series of templates for all local governments to be able to use for RFIs, competitions and challenges, and performance-based procurement. We're using the workshop as a way to anchor those templates with the seven participating cities. But the whole goal of the initiative is to have a series of templates that can be used by a much, much broader network of local governments. So yeah, for sure, we will share those whenever they're ready. Thank you so much. We look forward to that. And again, sounds like a lot of fun to get involved in. I want to turn to maybe uh, an, another topic or another f- aspect of this is you mentioned citizen engagement a ton of times. And you mentioned the role of the citizen as key to getting uh, the approval, but a lot of the work was still happening behind the scenes. But I'm guessing there's places where citizens can play a role themselves in the resiliency initiatives. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. And so some of my, fa- I'm going to just give you some examples because there are some really great examples from our partner local governments that are doing this really well. So first and foremost, one of my favorite examples is from Broward County, Florida. They have essentially using citizen science to engage their community on flood protection efforts, sea level rise, saltwater intrusion, all of those kinds of things that we talked about earlier with Miami-Dade. They have an app to help citizens 
track, take pictures, monitor, evaluate the king tides in Broward County. And then they have a whole platform where you can see all of the different pictures, all of the different locations that citizens have been being able to track the king tides. And that's an awesome thing because, again, you know, it's a citizen science effort. So it has a ton of different uses. It engages the community, obviously, but it also provides the county with some really essential data about where flooding is happening, when, the extent of it, all of those kinds of things. So that's one example. My other uh, most favorite example of late is from Norfolk, Virginia. They've done a really, really wonderful job recently in engaging their community on property level interventions that increase resilience. So I think it's under, the big banner is under a program called Retain Your Rain. And it engages citizens, again, on a homeowner by homeowner basis to figure out all of the different strategies that they can use to capture stormwater on their property. They're also doing things like an adopt a drain program where citizens actually adopt a stormwater drain. They've really done a tremendous job in Norfolk of figuring out ways to engage citizens on a home by home basis. And again, to have it open up this bigger, broader discussion of what's the city doing on a more strategic level, right? So engaging homeowners on a property by property basis, but using that as an anchor to open up this much bigger, more strategic conversation about resilience in Norfolk. Oh, those are great examples. Thank you for sharing. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot here because your work and your focus is on funding these uh, infrastructure projects, helping people bring uh, solutions to where they are today. But when we start talking about these billion-dollar investments, $13 billion over 20 years, makes me wonder about a topic we've also brought up on this show, which is retreat. At what point is that investment in infrastructure in place the wrong investment? And are you having conversations about that with some of your partners? Man, that's such that's such a tough conversation. And it's honestly not one that we're super engaged with. You know, I think that going back to the focusing on citizen pain points and actually really jumpstarting progress, so many of our partner cities and partner local governments are really focused on the next five to 10 years and what they can do. And even sometimes it can be difficult to have that time frame of discussion. You know, so I think the retreat option, while of course it's a conversation that we should be having and are going to absolutely have, it's not one that we're actively engaged with yet. And again, I think it's because of that time, the mismatch in terms of timing. It's just a really difficult conversation to open up with citizens, with electeds. It's just, it's a really tough conversation to have. And I'm sorry that I don't... (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I don't have more success stories to share from our partner governments. It's just it's just not the type of conversations that we're having yet. Well, and that's fair enough. I would be surprised if you were given your sort of approach and the work you're doing. But it's also interesting to hear you say that you think it will be a conversation we're having just a different time horizon. So I appreciate the response. Going back to the point that I made earlier about making sure that these projects are a part of a more comprehensive strategy and plan. I think that's exactly where retreat comes into play. And that's why it's so important that any kind of resilience or adaptation project is a part of a broader, more comprehensive strategy or plan. Without that strategy or plan, it's impossible to engage in conversations about retreat. 
which are really important conversations, but I think that they have to be a part of that strategy and planning process. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. And the more we can have both the infrastructure solutions as an available set of ways you can go forward and a comprehensive conversation, I think our communities are going to be better, whether they are where they are, whether they retreat or some combination of both. So it sounds like, I mean, you're really seeing so many examples of where when the pieces are in order and lined up, where the people are ready to act and empowered to act, where they have the right leadership mix, or maybe there's some opportunistic event like a disaster, even if it's not a positive one, people can then seize that moment and move forward. You're seeing the ingredients lining up. You're seeing success happen. And that's really fantastic. I'm so thankful. So of course, we want to let people know kind of where to go to learn more, to potentially look at how they can take action. And you have an entire business built around that. So why don't you tell us about the marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. So that exactly what you just described, Kip, is what motivated us to create the Atlas. So this is going back, I'm dating us like several years, six or seven years now. But we all got, me and my my co-founders all, all got out of government around the same time and started working with a set of partner cities with the support of the Rockefeller Foundation to design, finance, and implement resilient infrastructure projects. And we kept getting the same set of questions over and over and over again from our partner cities. And it was, who's done this before? What other cities? How much did it cost? What have the outcomes been? How did they procure it? How was it designed? It was the same set of questions over and over again. And our city partner said to us, you know, I can't even think about approaching my mayor or my city council with something like this until I have a really good handle on who's done this before, what other cities have done this before. Because at the end of the day, it's one of our advisors, Mayor Nutter from Philadelphia, always likes to say, (laughs) cities don't really like to be first, they like to be third or fourth to innovate. So the key is de-risking these kinds of projects for cities to make it easier for them to, as we fondly say, rip off and duplicate to R&D. What's working? (laughs) So way back, like five or six years ago, we literally started compiling examples of successful resilience projects from around the world. And we were originally tracking it literally in an Excel database. And we started getting requests from our city partners to make that data richer, to make it more interactive, to do all of these different things with it. And essentially, since then, we've launched a series of of versions of the Atlas, culminating in the version that we launched about nine months ago now. And really, it's an entire database of success stories, of things that are working on the ground. And it's cities that are providing their own success stories, It's implementing partners like engineering firms, design firms, technology firms. It's our partner NGOs. Everybody who has this goal to say, hey, this is what's been working for us. We want to share it so that other folks can R&D, can rip off and duplicate what's working in our community. And this kind of the stuff that we've been building out more and more recently on the platform is really improving the ability for folks to actually connect on site. So really building out the social networking features. So there's already one-on-one messaging. You can ask questions. You can download the RFPs that were used in a particular project. You can get more information about how projects were funded and financed, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, moving forward, we really want this to be the hub 
where cities and local governments are learning from one another about what's working on the ground. Uh, That's fantastic. So tell us the website. (laughs) It's www.the-atlas.com. And I'll say, Kith, you said this in the intro, but I should point out again that access to the platform and all of our support to local governments is totally free. Wow, that's amazing. We could spend a whole other conversation on the private sector side of this and a business model that you guys have built and how that's all building out. But I think we might be about out of time. So I want to thank you so much for joining us, Ellery, telling us about your work, telling us about these examples from around the country. I encourage folks to go check out the Atlas and look for yourselves and see what's going on. And thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm so happy to have been here. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.